Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this episode of the podcast is Proceedings Editor-in-Chief Bill Hamlet. Hi, Bill. Hey, Ward. So a lot going on these days in the world. Holy mackerel. There yeah. was a USNI news item this morning that caught my attention. The Kennedy, which is CVN-79, cannot, out of the blocks, do flight ops with the Joint Strike Fighter, which seems a little bit... Um, yeah, left hand, right hand. Yeah, exactly. Problematic, right? You're building the newest, yeah. you know, the second newest carrier, or the new, you know, it'll be the, the newest, the newest, right, right of the cannot, Ford class. It's going it, to comes out. Uh, so, reading here from Sam's report this morning, uh, CVN 79 will not be able to deploy. Will not be able to deploy with F 35s when it's delivered as a direct result of a cost cap. So, when that cost cap was imposed, the Navy traded that capability off and chose to build that back in the back end. Uh, unacceptable to our members that the newest carriers can't deploy with the newest aircraft. Modifications will be considered as the Navy weighs how it will deliver Kennedy in one phase or in two. And as we know, the Ford was deployed, was delivered in two phases. It was sort of de- delivered and then came out for its initial sea trials and then back into the yards for installation of a, a lot of its combat systems. And, and as we also know, you know, much of that is still undergoing testing. The weapons elevators are not all up yet. They've got like, I think four or five Five of the weapons elevators have been, you know, uh, you know, are now fully mission capable on Ford, but five of them are still, you know, being worked on. Uh, yeah. So, um, well, I, I think guess, we've talked about that on the show before, with the sort of development of all of these new capabilities, next gen capabilities, all on a single platform, right? So, uh, new cats, new arresting gear, a new radar suite. Move the island further aft. New propulsion system. New propulsion system. Uh, so that's a lot to lump onto one $10 billion platform. And as you've mentioned, the uh, weapons elevators, which are use the same electromagnetic uh, physics as the catapults, uh, aren't quite working. So what works in the lab or what works on paper isn't working at sea so far, um, or at least not all of them are working. Um, so there's horse trading. There are things that you have to do to, to even move the program forward. That's the world of defense procurement. Um, that's what a systems command is for and, and test and evaluation commands. But it just seems uh, curious that that would be an inherency. And maybe that's just the way that they want to do it in order to uh, get the, the ship funded when it gets closer. They'll be like, hey, we got a ship, but guess what? It's not funded to the degree that we can put these airplanes on it. So what do you think, Congress? We need that money. Um, so maybe they're they're not as naive. Maybe this is part of the, the plan. Um, kind of like the discussion we were having at SNA about the one-third, one-third, one-third. It's like, if you want 355 ships, Mr. President, we can't do one-third, one-third, one-third. Right, that that kind of stuff. That and you're like, well, maybe they're maybe they're being smart about this. Who who knows? But just prima facie, it seems a bit uh, left hand, right hand, not not communicating. The other thing that comes to mind is okay. If you're not going to have F-35s, then you're going to have Super Hornets, and Super Hornets are reaching flea. They're they're running out of life um, because we've flown them because of the. War since 9-11, we've flown them more than we thought we were going to, or the, more that, than was programmed. And so they've had flea extensions, and you start to get safety of flight risks. You know, these the old plastic jets. Um, they can only You can only torque the beer can so many times before it doesn't work anymore. Um, so that's another thing that we haven't quite, to my eye, 
suitcase. Now, I know there have been comms with Boeing, and Boeing is especially in the face of their their uh, challenges these days with the Max 8. They've said, sure, we can make more Super Hornets. You know, we're, the assembly line is active, and we'll just make more. It's just, you know, you got to pay us. Um, so that may be an interim solution. It's obviously a platform that works, and you talk to Super Hornet pilots like we did out at Tailhook. They love the airplane. So uh, yeah, a lot of those again, aircraft have hit 6,000 hours, which was the original you know, lifespan of the, uh, of the Super Hornet and they've been extended to, or are being extended to 10,000 hours. Right. Yep. But that's, uh, yeah, that's a considerable. And we talked to pops about that, right? Like did. how, how yep. quickly do you get to that? And, you know, doing the math, I'm like, is that a thousand hours per airframe per year? It's like, no, no, it, it's, it takes longer than that. So he was thinking it was a 10 year horizon, um, for, with that, ex- that extension. So, okay, maybe that'll get us there. But again, just having read that article this morning, I think I remember hearing that, but when Sam rewrote it or teed it up again, it's, it's just amazing to me. Yep. Uh, a couple other things coming up for our listeners, uh, particularly those who are in the Washington, D.C. area. We'd like to highlight a conference next week, uh, part of our ongoing Maritime Security Dialogue, which is a partnership with the Naval Institute and the Center for Strategic and International Studies uh, at CSIS, which is uh, located on Rhode Island Avenue in downtown Washington on <coughs> Tuesday for February. We'll have a discussion with Vice Admiral Andrew Lewis, the commander of Second Fleet, about uh, what uh, his command has been, you know, brought back to life. Second Fleet was uh, disestablished and then reestablished, and it's back to uh, full operational capability. They've uh, run some of the the big exercises over the past two years, including Trident Juncture, way up in uh, you know above the Arctic Circle. So Admiral Lewis will be at CSIS for an MSD Maritime Security Dialogue event on Tuesday, February fourth. So if you're in the DC area, come out to that. Don't miss it. Uh, I think it starts. Let me click on it real quick and see what time of day that is. It's usually at uh, it's nine, usually nine, nine, nine o'clock or ten. Uh, nine thirty. Nine thirty. So nine thirty to ten thirty. <laughs> so that's a pretty easy one to get to if you're in uh, in the DC area. The other upcoming event. Uh, so we're closing out January now. Uh, so just a little over a month until West 2020. So our big event every year at the San Diego Convention Center, two and three March this year, two days rather than two and a half days. Uh, Naval Institute, AFSEA, combined effort, a huge event, eight, eight to 10,000 people will be there. If you are a Naval Institute member, you get a, uh, a reduction or, or, you know, lower price to entrance fee. If you are active duty military, uh, it's free for you. So if you're active duty and you're, and you're in the San Diego area, Navy Marine Corps Coast Guard, come on out to West. You'll hear amazing keynote speakers. Panel discussions uh, you, you know, on the Monday morning, the 2nd of March, I think at 10 o'clock or 10.30 is the Sea Service Chiefs panel, the town hall panel. So you'll have General Berger, you'll have CNO Dilday, and you'll have Admiral Schultz, Commandant of the Coast Guard. And that panel will be moderated by Bob Work, uh, former DepSecDef, who is the chairman of our board. And so that'll be a, just a, a terrific conversation. Uh, you know, Bob Work is just does a great job of teeing up the, the very hard questions for very senior leaders. So uh, don't miss West, particularly if you're stationed in the, in the San Diego area. You don't want to miss it. And members, don't forget the Ultimate Skybox member event that's always the uh, social event at West will be Tuesday night at the Ultimate Skybox. It's a very cool venue that overlooks the Padres Stadium. So if uh, if you're a member and uh, you normally go to that, that's when that's going to happen. So again, like you said, Bill, it's uh, our, our signature event of the year, and we're very much looking forward to going out to San Diego. 
Another thing happening tomorrow night here at the Naval Academy, it is ship selection night for the class of 2020 surface warfare selectees. And we're going to be there uh, recording the podcast. It's not going to be live. So we'll, we'll, the, the podcast will be live on Friday morning, but we're going to be there for the first time talking to the principals and some of the flags, our good friend, Admiral Brown, who was just on the show from SNA. We're going to talk to him. We're going to talk to the Academy superintendent. Uh, we'll talk to N96 and any of the other surface warfare flags who happen to be around. And then most importantly, we're going to talk to some of the new ship selectees and see how what they're thinking and why they picked a ship in Rota or San Diego or Norfolk and what class of ship. It's going to be really, really cool. And so I have never attended. I've watched it on the live stream. And the energy is off the page. It's just really, really a, a high-velocity evolution. So it'll be me and our our fellow uh, Captain Jeff Benson, um, who's a surface warfare officer. He'll be there for color commentary. So we're looking forward to that. So look for that show. As I said, we'll be recording it tomorrow night at the event, and then we'll make it live. And if you're subscribed to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or SoundCloud or Google Play, look for it on Friday. Yeah. Uh, one more preview of coming attraction before we go to our guests. Uh, so we've had a conversation here within the Naval Institute about the podcast and about sort of, uh, you know, different types or episodes of the podcast. You know, as, as uh, folks know, we've had a number of uh, Naval Institute press authors to talk about books that the press has put out. We've had some Naval history authors. Uh, we've had people outside of the proceedings family, um, you know, some who have written for proceedings, others like, you know, Admiral Ted Carter when he was, uh, you know, retiring his last summer, song. his swan yeah, song, his right? His mini oral history. Right. And so in our, our conversations General here, Kelly. We, we, that's right. We are, we are going to rebrand the proceedings podcast to the Naval Institute Pro podcast. Uh, so that'll be a, a name change uh, and, and also just in line with the fact that the Naval Institute is more than proceedings, a, a lot more, right? We have press, we have conferences, we have naval history, we've got oral histories, uh, we've got um, we've got USNI News, and so we just want to highlight to our listeners the full breadth of the content, the full breadth of all the programming that the Naval Institute offers, and we're going to do podcast episodes based on all of those different things. So Proceedings Podcast will soon be uh, changing over to Naval Institute Podcast, uh, same great hosts. Same great <laughs> and, content. And no action required if you're, nope. a subscriber, if you're a subscriber. It'll be transparent to you. Absolutely. Um, so as you said, Bill, we started this podcast uh, more than two years ago uh, with the idea that we'd go deeper with proceedings authors like exclusively. Yeah. And it's blossomed uh, in, in all myriad ways. And, and uh, we were just circling up with the product team and we sort of were all of the mind that the label, the Proceedings Podcast, did not quite capture what it is we do here. Uh, so, uh, yeah, look for that very soon. Okay. And uh, case in point, uh, our guest today on the podcast is one of the authors of a Naval Institute press book that came out late in 2019. The book is called Chinese Communist Espionage and Intelligence Primer. The author who's on, on the hook with us uh, from San Jose, California today is Matt Brazil. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. So your book is a uh, is a primer. Um, it's a a ref. I would call it a, a great reference book. And as you sort of kick it off at the start with um, that, lots of you know books have been written about espionage around the world, about spy craft and spy you know trade trade craft. 
but not a whole lot has been written about uh, Chinese communist espionage, the Chinese party, its intelligence apparatus over the years since its inception in, what, 1927, 26, 27. Um, and so you, you went deep on a lot of um, you know, really sort of reference kinds of things. What was the history of, of, uh, of the intelligence apparatus under Mao and his predecessors even? Uh, how did that change uh, when, the, when the, the Chinese Communist Party came to full power in 1949? And how is it adapted? And it's certainly in the news today. I noticed there was a New York Times story today. Uh, other, other news stories uh, also cover this. The U.S. accuses a Harvard scientist of concealing Chinese funding, which was just great, you know, case in point of the sort of depth and breadth and how far the tentacles of Chinese state espionage reach into this country and other countries around the world. So uh, I'll leave it, leave it to you, um, Matt, to take it from there. One of the points we make in the book is that there isn't really that much mystery about Chinese communist espionage. They use traditional trade craft for the most part, secret meetings in third countries, finding people with vulnerabilities, uh, using cash as an incentive. In this case, uh, certainly that uh, is apparent. At the same time, they also use what the uh, director of the FBI has called non-traditional uh, uh, collection uh, collection efforts. And uh, I, I don't particularly like that term because it's not very exact. And, and also, if you think about it uh, uh, in terms of Chinese history, the the use of um, connections with people, as is described in, in that article, uh, the use of, um, uh, of money to bring people back to China, and, uh, and when it comes to appealing to ethnic Chinese people, the use of helping the motherland as a incentive, that's very traditional. Um, but the point is that the Chinese Communist Party is after not only uh, the sort of secrets that we're used to thinking about with espionage, uh, classified secrets, but they're also after industrial secrets. And, and this is a, an example of that. So you sort of bifurcate in the, in the overview or the, the, the preface the, the two subsets of this apparatus and there's the, the talented people and there's the loyalists and you sort of tee up this thesis that the, the Chinese communist party and the intelligence portion of it has been its own worst enemy with respect to demanding loyalty uh, just a, out of, out of hand. Yes. Uh, this goes back to a very old problem that the communist party has created for itself over the years, uh, demanding that people be both red and expert. Uh, a phrase that will be traditional, or rather a phrase that will be familiar to people who have studied China over the years. So during the revolution, and even today, uh, there's an emphasis on on uh, being both red and expert, being a, a loyal Marxist, uh, and being technically competent. During the revolution, this was a big problem for people who are actually out in the field doing their jobs, that is, uh, rubbing shoulders with uh, traitors and uh, uh, and thieves and people who were able to uh, uh, give them secrets from the other side. In other words, talking to, to uh, enemy uh, army officers and such to get them to betray their side. Um, they weren't readily observable to the political commissars back in the red base area. And so when political struggles 
came up, especially in 1943 and then after 1949, then these people who were out in the field collecting secrets, not under the observation of uh, the politically reliable people back at the base area, uh, they became easy targets, and a lot of them were persecuted. Today, the situation has changed somewhat. Today, um, uh, the big problem related to that red versus expert issue is that intelligence analysts on the communist side have to explain why the arc of history that is supposed to favor a socialist revolution uh, sometimes gets off track. And whenever it gets off track, they want to be able to blame somebody. It's, it's supposed to be a, a leftist deviation or a right, rightist wind or a traitor within or something like that whenever things don't work out. And if they can't find a ready uh, uh, scapegoat for when things don't work out, then it's difficult to explain uh, uh, problems that uh, that senior policymakers want to understand. Who are who are the uh, the the major, I guess, organizational players of Chinese communist uh, espionage? So, d- describe, if you would, a little bit about how. The Red Army or the PLA plays uh, the, the the Ministry for State Security and the Ministry for uh, the, the the People's Security. Yeah, the Ministry of um, of Public Security that you mentioned last there. They're like uh, they're like the FBI and the police combined. Um, they are, uh, or maybe like the Australian um, uh, Federal Police. Uh, they're a nationwide organization, but they also have bureaus at the local level. And they're in charge of finding criminals, but they're also in charge of of, uh, of uh, persecuting re- religious groups that are not affiliated with the party or approved by the party. They used to do a counterintelligence mission up until 1983, but then uh, that counterintelligence mission was given to the ministry, the new Ministry of State Security, and they are like a combination now nowadays of uh, parts of the FBI and the CIA. Uh, they have an overseas mission, and they have a domestic mission to uh, find spies and also to uh, investigate corruption. Um, until recently, the uh, the PLA second and uh, uh, third departments for human intelligence and signal intelligence were the main player overseas. Uh, they were actually more proficient overseas at running spies and stealing secrets than state security. But there was a reorganization in 2015, 2016. The PLA um, was asked to go back to uh, focusing on military intelligence problems while state security began more work overseas. And uh, indeed, we saw in a recent case the arrest of one Xu Yanjun, a state security officer in Belgium, who was quickly extradited to the United States, um, and he was arrested because he was trying to steal industrial secrets from General Electric, their um, carbon turbo uh, fan uh, parts for high energy, uh, high uh, high temperature engines, jet engines that uh, have uh, the technology has so far eluded the Chinese, and that's been a problem for them for actually decades. Um, so that's the Ministry of State Security um, running spies overseas and uh, and uh, possibly involved in some of these incidents we've been discussing 
about uh, the the uh, academics uh, who are stealing secrets and passing them to uh, to China in violation of contracts or law. Um, then within the party, there's also the United Front Work Department. They are less of an intelligence collector than they are a uh, influence organization. The United Front Work Department, on the other hand, is an organization that is mostly charged with uh, liaising with um, foreign political um, parties and organizations. Um, they have more of an influence mission than they do an intelligence one, but in the process of of um, contacting foreigners who could be of use to China, of course, they might run into intelligence information, which they duly report. So the book is organized. Uh, we've already talked about the introduction, but um, as Bill was hinting at, you, you go through the various organizations and agencies within the apparatus, and then you also have sort of moments in history and the personalities involved in, in a very summary way, a, a bite-sized way. So who, who are some of the 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 names that that jump out in the history that you cover here and why a couple of the names that jump out um to me because i recently saw uh, a chinese film where it looks like they were actually uh, uh, depicting a couple of these revolutionary heroes a couple of the names that jump out are uh, not known to to americans or westerners really one is dung fa who was uh, for a time in charge of the secret police during the revolutionary period um, and whose name cropped up in a book that many people uh, have read if they've studied China in college um, called Red Star Over China. Uh, Deng Fa met the author of Red Star Over China, Edgar Snow, uh, in Xi'an uh, in disguise. He was disguised as a nationalist officer. Deng Fa had a very colorful career before then um, as an operative doing assassinations and uh, other uh, related work uh, behind the lines in Hong Kong and, uh, and in, in Guangdong province. Then there's another one, uh, sort of a similar character, Gong Chan Rong. Gong Chan Rong was uh, uh, of the same sort, uh, man of action, um, assassinating enemies and protecting VIPs. Uh, who met a bitter end in Shanghai uh, in the mid-1930s, I believe 1935, um, when he was captured and tortured to death. Um, there are plenty of others, though. Um, one person who is uh, rather key to Chinese communist history is Pan Hanyan. Pan Hanyan was, at one point during the revolution and during the anti-Japanese war, World War II, he was the head of intelligence operations in all of the Japanese occupied areas. And, uh, and he, uh, survived to the end of, of the war and the revolution, the 1949 victory. He became a vice minister or rather a vice mayor of Shanghai, um, and was in line to become mayor when he found himself in a difficult situation and decided to confess to a rather, um, uh, minor to moderate problem that he had not reported a meeting during World War II with a senior uh, uh, enemy leader, a uh, meeting he had in secret which uh, where he was seeking intelligence cooperation. Uh, so Mao Zedong decided that he could no longer be trusted, and to make a long story short, Han Hanyan ended uh, his life in, uh, in prison 
during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, so there are many stories like this in, in the book where we've tried to bring a human dimension to CCP espionage operations. Um, and there's also uh, a very long list of, of modern cases, uh, many of them involving technology diversion or uh, intellectual property theft. So when you think about all of these personalities that you talk about in the book, what's the common thread? Is it is it one of paranoia? Is it one of really good at spy craft? What what's, what are some of your takeaways? There's been a a uh, consistent theme of professionalization, uh, continuous improvement, uh, changing our organizations with the times when the challenges faced by the Communist Party change. Um, there's also been a common theme uh, that Marxist-Leninist ideology is very important to the worldview of the people who are doing the work. But beyond that, uh, the people involved are as different as any other group of people. There are people from with uh, uh, during the revolution and afterward. There are people from working class backgrounds, uh, ordinary backgrounds. There are people from intellectual backgrounds. People who had uh, family histories of of siding with uh, traditional authority who rebelled against that, and uh, and people who were uh, more naturally rebels. Um, today, the people who get involved with uh, state security largely come from um, new recruits, that is. Uh, many more of them than before come from elite universities because uh, the Ministry of State Security has made a concerted effort to recruit from those universities. Uh, I've spoken to a few people who who knew students who became involved with state security, and it sounds that the stories they tell sound very familiar to anybody who um, might have uh, heard about somebody who went to work for CIA during the 1950s. Polite people in polite company don't talk about how Johnny Jones is now working for CIA. They, they change the subject. Um, and that's kind of the situation today uh, where, where state security is looking for people who have the, the critical foreign languages they, they seek um, and who have technical expertise in particular, of course, people who not only can uh, talk a good game and convince somebody to betray their country, but also somebody who's good behind a computer screen. Matt, how did you guys uh, do your uh, research in China or in Asia? Did you, did you? I mean, your the the bibliography and the notes for this book are, are almost a third of the book. So anybody who's looking for not just a book to to inform them about Chinese espionage, but also a place to start reading more, will will find a ton of that here. Uh, so in addition to what you were able to find in other sources in the West, how how. You know, did you travel to China? How often did you travel? And and what was it like there to do research on a book like this on this topic? During the time um, that uh, we did the research, with the time we did the writing, um, my co-author Peter Mattis had contact with uh, a number of people here in the United States uh, that he knew from his previous career with CIA, um, both Chinese people and. Uh, and Americans who were able to comment privately on various aspects of the research. Um, also, during the the time uh, leading up to 
the actual writing of the book during uh, 2008 to 2016, when I knew that we were going to write a book, but um, my corporate employment stopped me from being involved in the project directly. Um, I was uh, living in China and traveling in China. Um, I, during the time I was living in China, it was a different period. It was before Xi Jinping, and things weren't so tight like they are today. So I was living in the northeastern city of Dalian, for example, in 2009, 2010. And, uh, and uh, I had, uh, because I was doing security work for an American company, um, I had regular contacts with the Chinese police, and uh, they knew what I was doing as far as my research went. Um, at the time, I was finishing up a doctoral dissertation, and they um, uh, actually assisted me in getting in touch with the uh, local authorities who connected me up to a, a uh, uh, interesting old lady named Wang Shirong, who is featured in the book, who had been a courier behind the lines during the anti-Japanese war, and, and uh, her exploits were actually made into, uh, into a movie during the Cultural Revolution. Um, so I was able to interview a few people. Um, when I came back to the United States, uh, I also uh, interviewed a party historian who was visiting uh, a local university here in the Bay Area who uh, had plenty to tell me about where he thought my research was good, where he thought my research was not so good, and, and that was uh, helpful in, in uh, different ways. Uh, but a lot of it, was that we collected a lot of books. Uh, the study or, or the, uh, the stories of, of, um, of espionage during the revolution uh, has become a small industry in China. Um, it's, uh, it's on, if you go into YouTube and you put in some of these names that uh, we have in the book, like uh, Pan Han Yen, you get uh, soap operas from the revolution. Uh, and the number of books is uh, is uh, significant. There are probably two or three hundred uh, different titles uh, concerning espionage during the revolution, uh, and so that was good. Um, to balance that out, we also um, consulted sources from Taiwan. Uh, we did research in Taiwan, uh, interviews and uh, and archives research. And we also looked at uh, published works uh, that would be banned on the mainland that came out of Hong Kong and Taiwan. One of the recurring themes in proceedings in recent years has been the return to peer conflict. And so that sort of means that Russia and China are back and we're getting away from the asymmetric wars in the Middle East. So you hear on the campaign trail talk of trade wars and what we need to do about China devaluing their currency. and so what's, what should the average American fear? What is the threat? Um, and and what, what, what is real about the threat and, and what, what is really not, not an imminent part of it? Well, I think it's important to keep into, in perspective what China is really trying to achieve. Um, and there's a debate about this amongst China specialists. There are, are people who believe that China is trying to supplant the U.S. position in the world as, um, as a superpower. There are people who believe that the Chinese have uh, a uh, lesser ambition to return to being the suzerain power 
the dominant power in Asia. I think if we examine, um, apart from that question, though, I think if we examine what the Chinese are actually doing, um, they're doing some things that are different than what we uh, did as a rising power in the 20th century. Um, uh, we weren't out stealing technology from foreign companies to benefit the U.S. military. Uh, we were, um, especially after um, uh, 1947. Uh, we were certainly, though, out trying to uh, uh, steal secrets and to engage in covert activities meant to advance American interests. And I believe, uh, I have no proof, but I believe that the Chinese are aware of that history uh, because they lived some of it when the U.S. was, uh, uh, for example, putting Tibetan guerrillas into, uh, uh, from exile back into Tibet to uh, destabilize the Chinese administration of Tibet after 1949. Um, they're, they're aware of these things, and they seem to be starting to do some of uh, some things that resemble uh, what the U.S. did when it was trying to shape the world uh, uh, to advance U.S. interests, and that's that seems to be their their um, their agenda. They're engaged in influence operations um, in different countries to uh, shape the narrative of the discussion of China, uh, including in this country. Uh, and of course, they're out stealing secrets, but they're also uh, that classified secrets. But they're also uh, engaged in this very widespread and uh, sophisticated effort um, that's detailed in another book, by the way, uh, by James Mulvennan and uh, uh, Hannes and Puglisi called Chinese Industrial Espionage. Uh, in that book, uh, the different aspect of Chinese espionage is is uh, detailed, where there's a system set up to not only steal the secrets, but dis industrial secrets, but distribute them amongst the state-owned enterprises and uh, ministries that need them in China. I remember when I was a, a student at the National Defense University a few years ago, we had a, a, a visiting lecturer who was a, so I was in the Industrial uh, College of the Armed Forces, now called the Eisenhower School, but the focus was on industry and, and industries that support national defense and national security. And I remember this uh, uh, U.S. Uh, CEO of a company, I won't name the company, but that did a lot of manufacturing in China. And he talked about the business model for that and how, uh, you know, all companies that do that, that do their manufacturing in China, know that their uh, intellectual property is going to be stolen. It's going to be subverted. It's going to be then distributed, to, as you said, Matt, to the state-owned enterprises. And so that those state-owned enterprises will then try to play a catch-up game where they start to dominate or compete and then dominate in that same industry or in the same you know business sphere. And, uh, and he's the CEO said, you know, so our business model is to constantly stay ahead, uh, to be, you know, upping our intellectual property game, inventing new things. And then the Chinese will always be one or two uh, generations behind us in the technology. And at some point when the bell curve starts to flatten out and they've caught up and we can no longer keep advancing this particular technology, we get out of the business and we go invent something else, completely a, a whole new line of, of, uh, of product or technology. And that just it blew my mind. Like all of us in the class were like, wow, that is 
what you know what a game that is to play. So right? this is the other current events thing where the UK has uh, said it's okay for the five G technology that's from what's the Chinese company that's, Huawei. Yeah, that we have boycotted and and said we won't use their stuff. Um, so the world is also kind of has gets a vote in terms of how this plays out. If you imagine that that company was like an Apple, for instance, when they say we'll get into something else, it's like, so what else is Apple going to do? Yeah. Right? They're going to start making something besides iPhones? So they yeah, this was not Apple. It wasn't yeah. that big a company, but it yeah. was a company that was doing a, a couple different things that were high tech uh, and, and they're, you know, they would invent the technology here. They would invent the the gizmo that would build that technology in China, um, sorry, in in another um, another company, another country like Singapore, then that gizmo would be exported to a plant where they could scale it up in China and build it, knowing that the Chinese were watching and and stealing that technology, and then they would start to build that same gizmo, and then over time, either they had they went to generation two, generation three, or when the Chinese actually did catch up or got close enough that there was no no more the margin the profit margin went you know started to really shrink fast then they were out you know okay we're, we're seeding this this particular part of the business world to a, a chinese company or a chinese state-owned enterprise it was it was fascinating so so matt on all of this what's what's your sense of how much the average never mind the average american the average american lawmaker <laughs> understands about china as we talk about trade wars or we talk about uh the the rise of the military threat and as it informs our, our military, our DOD program of record, what do you think we are at least, are they well informed about China or, or are they woefully ignorant of China? When people talk in public from Congress, I, I see a mix of uh, well-informed comments and uh, less informed comments. Fortunately, um, my co-author is now working on Capitol Hill. Uh, for the China Economic Commission, I think it's called. I've got that name wrong. Um, but um, and and I and I have another friend who uh, works for Congress, who's a China specialist, a classmate of mine from a long time ago. So they've they've hired their experts, and that's good. The thing, though, that the gap that exists uh, that I think needs to eventually be addressed is the one that you alluded to a moment ago, and that is that. American businesses, their their model is, uh, especially in the technology field, is to outrun the competition, and it doesn't matter if they're a couple generations behind. And that's okay if you're just speaking about conventional business problems. But here we're speaking about something else. We're speaking about a country that has uh, China that has uh, a very focused program to catch up with the West and, if possible, surpass it. An old idea, by the way, that comes from not only Mao's time, with the Great Leap Forward in in, uh, in 1958-59, but also from the uh, uh, last part of the Qing Dynasty in in the late 19th century, um, when uh, there was a program to try to catch up with the West. So that's an old idea, and the problem that exists is that if the Chinese are just a generation or two behind U.S. manufacturers in jet engines, then that makes that means they can make better cruise missiles than they've ever made before. 
if they are just a generation behind in semiconductor technology manufacturing, um, then that means they've got really good circuits that can be used on missiles that they didn't have before. Uh, and, and so this is not a conventional business problem. Um, it's, it's one of, uh, national interest. I, I, it prompts me to recall a conversation in uh, a meeting of the American Chamber of Commerce when, uh, then member of Congress Elizabeth Holtzman visited China in 1993, I think it was. And she had this rollicking debate with people in the audience. At one point, they were almost shouting at each other. Uh, they were talking about export controls, and uh, and and she was telling them why the post Tiananmen controls were in place uh, to stop sales to the Chinese military of certain uh, technologies. And someone from the audience shouted, "What about our company?" And Holtzman shouted back, "What about your country?" Yeah, that's a good quote. So, Matt, I wanted to switch to one last question and 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 topic. Uh, at the end of the book, you talk a little bit about you know intelligence and surveillance in China now, then and now, um, and you bring up the the point of this uh, what what's been in the news a, a bit in the United States lately, the social credit system. Uh, joining, you said lately, uh, joining these ba- baseline programs is the social credit system scheduled to fully roll out by 2020 or this year, later this year. System is enabled in significant measure by Chinese company Alibaba, the highly successful online sales platform, running an Alipay, which allows users to buy a range of products, etc. And the company is assembling a social integrity system. This is very Orwellian. This is, you know, if you're a good uh, Chinese citizen, then you can move about and you can have internet access and you can do what you need. Uh, but if you're not such a good uh, Chinese citizen, then we're going to constrain where you can travel to. We're going to constrain uh, the, the channels of media and information that you can subscribe to. And we're going to, um, you know, probably even put put controls on the types of jobs you can have and where you, where you can work and how much money you can get paid those kinds of things. Talk a little bit about what that social credit system is and and uh, how its rollout is going in China. There's been some good writing um, about this, in particular by Samantha Hoffman, who uh, is uh, a fellow at an Australian institute in Canberra. Um, it's, uh, it's being done in a very systematic way, uh, but like all programs that are rolled out in China of this sort, going back even in, into the history of the early People's Republic, it takes time to get this done down at the local level. Uh, they, they'll start in Beijing, Shanghai, and Guangzhou, and Chongqing, the really big uh, urban centers. Um, and it'll take time to roll it out into the rest of the country. Um, I think it's an open question whether they'll be able to meet their goals by the end of this year to fully complete the rollout. Um, but uh, but the, the intention is quite clear. Officials make no bones about it. They want people who are reliable to be able to go anywhere and do anything. They want people who are unreliable, who aren't paying fines, even people who are jaywalking across the street, uh, to have trouble going anywhere and doing anything. Um, you can't even take a uh, uh, an airplane flight if you're identified uh, as being unreliable. You can't get a high-speed train ticket if you're identified as being unreliable. You have to 
take a bus or a ordinary train. Um, and and this is a system that, uh, uh, in, in its worst elements, uh, if people listening have watched the series called Black Mirror uh, on television, it's quite reminiscent of uh, what the protagonist suffers in one of those episodes of being frozen out of ordinary social interaction that is uh, made available through technology. Very effective and is rather disturbing. Although it's scary on the surface, particularly to us, and, uh, and certainly it's, it's a, a disturbing phenomenon, the social credit system, I have to add that a lot of Chinese people really like it because China is a country that uh, doesn't work so much on contracts and formal understandings uh, under the law as it does with uh, connections and personal understandings. And so people who have felt cheated over the years by somebody who agrees to do something and then runs out on the agreement, or people who don't like the fact that so many people, uh, so many of their fellow citizens uh, like to cheat in various ways, they actually um, support the social credit system. And indeed, um, this is related to the support that Xi Jinping has among the general population. Um, yes, he's a much more assertive leader and, and is reminiscent now of Mao Zedong uh, and all the problems that came with uh, the extremism under Mao. But uh, just, as, uh, just as some Russians wished that Stalin would come back, there are a lot of people in China who support Xi Jinping because he brings order that they crave. So, Matt, Brazil, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Uh, you've uh, joined us from San Jose, California. Your book, uh, written with your uh, co-author Peter Mattis, is called Chinese Communist Espionage, an Intelligence Primer, published by the Naval Institute Press in 2019. Uh, it is available now for sale on the uh, Naval Institute home site, usni.org. Go to Books and Press, and you'll find uh, this book. You can also find it on Amazon and, and uh, Barnes and & Noble, etc. Uh, it's a great book, great primer. If you're interested in this topic and want to just sort of uh, hit the wave tops and get a sense of what's out there and and uh, get a sense of the history of espionage within the Chinese Communist Party and the all the way from the start to to modern day. Uh, this is a great book to start with and also t it'll it'll help guide you if there's more that you want to read if your appetite is not sated at the end of the book. So Matt, uh, greatly appreciate you writing the book and uh, being on the show show with us today. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay, well, this is our last podcast. Uh, I take that back. It's not our la last podcast of January because you'll be at uh, Ship Selection tomorrow night. So tomorrow night, Ship Selection. And then uh, next week, we'll have uh, two different uh, podcasts uh, with uh, Proceedings authors, and we'll be into the February issue of Proceedings. So look for it in your mailbox or look for it on our website. Uh, uh, we'll be posting the February issue uh, on Friday afternoon, Friday evening. So... Uh, that's it for this episode of the podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you tomorrow.